welcome back our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Now that my campaign is over and the holidays are behind us, we are returning to reviewing the Constitution of the United States of America. As is the Patriot Lessons way, we will do this exploration carefully and deliberately, clause by clause. We do have a cautionary notice for our loyal listeners. Because the Constitution requires amazingly time-consuming research, the release of our episodes will likely slow down. This one in particular was very intensive. Also, we've been having some fun discussions about adding other kinds of episodes within the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast. So, that might change things up a bit. But don't worry, we will go through every clause of the Constitution. It's just going to take some time, but I promise you it will be well worth the wait. Today, we will continue our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. We have completed our review of Sections 1 and 2 of the article, and now it is time to explore Section 3, which establishes and defines the powers of the United States Senate. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett and spectacular Sheila Guerin, and enchanting Aaron Mercino. Thank you for all your support. Mike Gerard will get us started. As we've previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Section 1 creates Congress, giving it all federal legislative authority. Congress is divided into two chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Section 2 provides that the House of Representatives is elected by the people of each state, the terms of office, how many members are allocated among the states, minimum age and residency requirements, and a variety of other essential components of the House. In a parallel fashion, Section 3 defines the essential terms of the Senate. As originally ratified, Section 3 of Article 1 began as follows. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof, for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Before we explore this provision deeply, a quick editorial note on the use of phraseology. Sometimes the delegates at the Constitutional Convention would refer to a branch of the legislature, or a department of the legislature, or a house of the legislature, or a chamber of the legislature, and these all mean the same thing. The Congress would be divided in two, and although the Congress is the legislative branch of the federal government, the delegates would sometimes refer to the branches within the Congress. Also during the discussions, convention delegates either referred to one chamber of the legislature as the lower house, the first branch, or the House of Representatives. And when they began to discuss the other chamber, they would refer to it as the upper house, the second branch, or the Senate. In any event, we're so used to thinking about a Congress composed of two chambers that we hardly give it a second thought. But nothing was taken for granted in the Constitutional Convention. The first major proposal for the new government was presented by Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph on May 29, 1787. Usually referred to by the delegates as the Randolph Resolutions, today we usually refer to them as the Virginia Plan. Section 3 of this plan resolved as follows. That the National Legislature ought to consist of two branches. After outlining what would become the House of Representatives in Section 4, the next section of the Randolph Resolves laid out the second branch of the legislature. Resolved that the members of the second branch of the National Legislature ought to be elected by those of the first, out of a proper number of persons 
nominated by the individual legislatures to be of the age of blank years at least, to hold their offices for a term sufficient to ensure their independency, to receive liberal stipends by which they may be compensated for the devotion of their time to public service, and to be ineligible to any office established by a particular state or under the authority of the United States except those peculiarly belonging to the functions of the second branch, during the term of service, and for the space of blank after the expiration thereof. This proposal was unanimously adopted by the Constitutional Convention immediately upon its presentation. Huh. Well, I guess that's it. That's the end of the episode. (laughs) Well, as Mark Hamill's Joker reveals, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, some delegates remained wedded to the idea that the Constitutional Convention was only authorized to tweak and amend the Articles of Confederation, and not to create a whole new system of government. Under the Articles, Congress, which had all the legislative power of the government, had but one chamber. In reaction to the Virginia Plan's sweeping new scheme of government, New Jersey delegate William Patterson introduced a counterplan, which maintained a one-chamber Congress. Patterson's resolves, usually referred to today as the New Jersey Plan, added an executive and a judiciary to the national government, and Congress was given more power, but the structure of the Congress remained the same, one chamber that represented the states. Pennsylvania delegate Governor Morris strongly supported the need for a bicameral legislature. Morris would later be dubbed as the penman of the Constitution because he authored the preamble and was the draftsman who eventually physically wrote and fleshed out the Constitution as agreed to by the delegates. Much of his wording was stylistic, but other word choices have had significant constitutional import. He also spoke more than any other delegate at the Constitutional Convention. On the debate about the need for two houses, he took a view that was emblematic of the prevailing sentiment. Referring to the upper house, he asked, What then is the object of the second branch? It is to check the precipitation, changeableness, and excesses of the first branch. Every man of observation has seen in the democratic branches of their state legislatures precipitation in their congresses, changeableness, and in every department excesses against personal liberty, private property, and personal safety. A main purpose of the Senate was to keep the House of Representatives in check to make sure that the House of Representatives didn't run amok and undermine the unalienable rights of the people. Morris explained that to fulfill that purpose, it needed men of the highest character, aristocrats, who would serve in the office independent of the House of Representatives. He explained that in the Senate, 1. It must have a personal interest in checking the other branch. 1. Interest must be opposed to another interest. Vices as they exist must be turned against each other. 2. It must have great personal property. It must have the aristocratic experience. It must love to hold it through pride. Pride is indeed the great principle that actuates both the poor and the rich. 
It is this principle which in the former resists and in the latter abuses authority. 3. It should be independent. In religion the creature is apt to forget its creator. That it is otherwise in political affairs, the late debates here are an unhappy proof. The aristocratic body should be as independent and as firm as the democratic. If the members of it are to revert to a dependence on the democratic choice, the democratic scale will preponderate. All the guards contrived by America have not restrained the senatorial branches of the legislature from a servile complacence to the democratic. If the second branch is to be dependent, we are better without it. The rich will strive to establish their dominion and enslave the rest. They always did. They always will. The proper security against them is to form them into a separate interest. The two forces will then control each other. Let the rich mix with the poor and in a commercial country, and they will establish an oligarchy. Take away commerce, and democracy will triumph. Thus it has been all over the world, so it will be among us. Reason tells us we are but men, and we are not to expect any particular interference of heaven in our favour. By thus combining and setting apart the aristocratic interest, the popular interest will be combined against it. There will be a mutual check and security. To put this in more modern language and political theory, the point of the House of Representatives is to represent and defend the common people, and the purpose of the upper house is to represent and defend the rich elite. When each house keeps to these positions, they'll offset each other and ensure that each, the common people and the aristocracy, will not be subverted or undermined, and that all people in the country will maintain their rights. Governor Morris actually wanted the Senate to represent the haughty rich and the House of Representative the common man. That way, their mutual pride and envy will counteract each other. Each chamber needs to be independent of the other and needs to fairly represent its respective population. If one chamber becomes dominated by the other, the system will break down. If the chamber represents the wrong people, the system will break down. Complete independence between the House of Representatives and the Senate is essential to protect the unalienable rights of all. The insights of Governor Morris were generally embraced by the convention. In accordance with that fundamental orientation, the convention quickly determined that the legislative branch needed two chambers, a bicameral division of the legislative power. After a quick debate on June 20th and 21st, the convention settled on a bicameral legislature by a vote of 7 to 3. That issue was settled and would never be debated again. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Let me jump in here before you consume the entire episode. As explored in a prior episode, after considerable debate, the Constitutional Convention agreed that the House of Representatives would be elected directly by the people, and Morris was counting on that to counteract the Senate. 
but the basis for selecting members to the Senate was a critical issue. In fact, it was perhaps the issue of the entire Constitutional Convention. In connection with this issue, the delegates began with some widely shared assumptions. The first was that how long each senator would serve would not be two years like the House of Representatives. Everyone agreed that the members of the second branch should serve longer. Second, like the House of Representatives, the members of the Senate would be chosen on a state-by-state basis. In other words, there was not going to be some kind of continental election or large geographic blocks constituting more than one state. Third, over time, there developed an understanding that the upper branch would also generally have additional powers than the House of Representatives, such as some role in treaty-making and appointments of federal officers like ambassadors and judges. This was going to be important to determining how long the senators should serve. But this is where the widespread agreement basically collapsed. The first area of disagreement involved how the members of the upper chamber would be selected. The first major proposal was the Virginia Plan's proposition that members of the upper chamber be chosen by the House of Representatives from people nominated by the state legislatures. If this had passed, state legislatures would send a list to the House of Representatives and the House of Representatives would select all the senators. This plan did not garner much support and soon vanished from the debates. On June 7th, about nine days after the Randolph resolutions had been presented, Pennsylvania Delegate John Dickinson made a motion, seconded by Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman, that each state legislature should select its state senators. After all, this was not very different from the Articles of Confederation. Article 5 of the Articles provided that the members of the Congress be appointed in a manner as chosen by the respective state legislature. Dickinson's motion was a bit more direct and prescriptive. It provided that the state legislature must elect the members of the upper house. The state legislatures couldn't establish another way, like general elections or appointment by a governor. That same day, Delaware Delegate George Reed proposed that the federal executive should appoint the members, out of individuals nominated by the states. If this had passed, the states would send up to the president a list of names, and he would appoint the entire U.S. Senate. This proposal was completely rejected. It was not even seconded. Governor Morris later expressed similar sentiments, but again, no formal motion was made to support it. Alexander Hamilton made one major, very lengthy speech in the convention. It was not well received. In monotonous, imperialistic-tinged comments, he argued that members of the upper chamber should be chosen by electors. This would be akin to what was eventually chosen for presidential elections. The voters would elect a group of electors, who in turn would elect the senators. The plan went exactly nowhere. The last major proposal, vigorously supported by Pennsylvania Delegate James Wilson and Virginia Delegate James Madison, favored direct elections by the people of each state. This would be identical to the House of Representatives, but the number of members of the Senate would be significantly less than the members of the House. In other words, senators would have electoral districts within the states, like the House of Representatives, but would represent a substantially larger number of people. In the end, of the five major proposals presented at the convention, two dominated. It was election by state legislatures versus direct election by the people. On June 7th, Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson moved that senators be chosen by the state legislatures. He remarked that It is essential that one branch of the legislature should be drawn immediately from the people, and as expedient that the other should be chosen by the legislatures of the states. 
This combination of the state governments with the national government was as politic as it was unavoidable. In the formation of the Senate, we ought to carry it through such as the House of Lords in England. I am for a strong national government, but for leaving the states a considerable agency in the system. Dickinson elaborated that this mode of election would have a twofold benefit. The state legislatures would ensure that the senators would best represent the interest of their individual states, and that the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop, only the top men of the state would ever serve in the Senate. I have two reasons for this motion. One, because the sense of the states would be better collected through their governments than immediately from the people at large. Two, because I wish the Senate to consist of the most distinguished characters, distinguished in their rank in life and their weight in property, and bearing as strong a likeness to the British House of Lords as possible. And I think such characters more likely to be selected by the state legislatures than in any other mode. Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman seconded Dickinson's motion and he observed that this mode of election would be the most likely to create a working relationship between the states and the national government. After all, the senators would be creatures of the state legislatures, and they could best communicate and support each other. By this mode of election, the particular states would thus become interested in supporting the national government, and uh, due harmony between the two governments would be maintained. I admit that the two ought to have separate and distinct jurisdictions, but that they ought to have a mutual interest in supporting each other. Agreeing with Dickinson, Sherman also explained that the men of the highest quality would be chosen by the state legislatures, and that would not be the case if they were simply elected by the people at large. In other words, the state legislatures would be more discerning electors than the population at large. Massachusetts delegate Elbridge Gerry also expressed support for having the state legislatures electing the senators. On the floor of the Constitutional Convention, he reviewed the four main options of electing senators and proposed that the state legislatures would most likely ensure that the best men would be elected and protect the unalienable rights of all. Four modes of appointing the Senate have been mentioned. One by the first branch of the national legislature. This would create a dependence contrary to the end proposed. 2. By the national executive. This is a stride towards monarchy that few will think of. 3. By the people. The people have two great interests, the landed interest and the commercial, including the stockholders. To draw both branches from the people will leave no security to the latter interest. The people, being chiefly composed of the landed interest and erroneously supposing that the other interests are adverse to it. 4. By the individual legislatures. The elections being carried through this refinement will be most likely to provide some check in favor of the commercial interest against the landed, without which oppression will take place, and no free government 
can last long where that is the case. I am therefore in favor of this last method. Notice Jerry commented that the House of Representatives would represent the landed interest, which might seem counterintuitive to our ears. That phrase, the landed interest, seems like something out of the antebellum plantation south. But in 1787, nearly all voters, which the House of Representatives was organized to represent, owned property. Most households were constituted of small, yeoman farmers who owned the land they tilled. In fact, nearly all states at the time recognized the right to vote to landowners, or at least those who paid taxes, which at the time was a monumental advancement in voting in world history. Any free man that owned any piece of land or paid any taxes could vote, and in America that meant pretty much all white men, except indentured servants, and that was a whole lot more people than in Europe and across the world. Any piece of dirt or tax would do. Jerry was not referring to great southern plantations, but yeoman farmers, store owners, tradesmen, craftsmen, fishermen, sailors, shop owners, artisans, and the like. Likewise, his reference to the commercial class being represented in the Senate might seem odd to us. But the Senate in his eyes would represent the rich, and the rich were, among other things, large merchants, financiers, bankers, large plantation owners, and large farmers who sold their produce for a profit. Jerry's view paralleled that of Governor Morris. He thought the state legislatures would best ensure that the Senate was populated by the commercial class. Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson concurred. Dickinson was brilliant and one of the first leading opponents of British oppression in the pre-revolutionary era. However, by his nature, Dickinson was less concerned about the clash of economic interest. Instead, he was more concerned about political power being appropriately distributed and limited. He argued that the sentiments of most of the people would be sufficiently represented in the House of Representatives, but was gravely concerned that the states be maintained to ensure that all power would not be concentrated in tyrannical hands in the national government. The states and the national government would need to check each other to preserve liberty. The preservation of the states with a certain degree of agency is indispensable. It will produce that collision between the different authorities which should be wished for in order to check each other. To attempt to abolish the states altogether would degrade the councils of our country, would be impractical, and would be ruinous. I compare the proposed national system to the solar system, in which states were the planets and ought to be left to move freely in their proper orbits. The gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Wilson, wished to extinguish these planets. If the state governments were excluded from all agency in the national one, and all power drawn from the people at large, the consequence would be that the national government would move in the same direction as the state governments do now, and would run into all the same mischiefs. The reform would only unite the thirteen small streams into one great current, pursuing the same course without any opposition whatsoever. Dickinson's use of a couple of metaphors here was revealing. With regard to the solar system analogy, he was willing to concede that the national government should be the sun, but he was unwilling to have it force all the states, that is the planets, to be the same or to be consumed by the star. 
Instead, he wanted the states to be free as planetarily possible to control their own fates and orbits. Likewise, unless the states had their own force and authority, they would be swept up in the great river of the national government. If the source of all power was placed in one river, it would easily wash away our rights. This reasoning, however, was vigorously opposed by two of the convention's most gifted and active members, James Madison and James Wilson. Wilson argued that a national government needed to represent the people of the nation. It should not represent political entities such as states, but the people directly. He didn't think that the Senate was necessary to protect the commercial interest, and he thought the states should follow the sun and be dependent upon it. In fact, he was more concerned that the states would devour the national government. The British government cannot be our model. We have no materials for a similar one. Our manners, our laws, the abolition of entails and of primogeniture, the whole genius of the people, are opposed the national government. On the contrary, I wish to keep them from devouring the national government. I am not, however, for extinguishing these planets as was supposed by Mr. Dickinson. Neither do I, on the other hand, believe that they would warm or enlighten the sun. Within their proper orbits, they must still be suffered to act for subordinate purposes for which their existence is made essential by the great extent of our country. I cannot comprehend in what manner the landed interest would be rendered less predominant in the Senate, by an election the medium of the legislatures, than by the people themselves. If the legislatures, as was now complained, sacrificed the commercial to the landed interest— What reason was there to expect such a choice from them as would defeat their own views? I am for an election by the people, which would be most likely to obtain men of intelligence and uprightness, subdividing the districts only for the accommodation of voters. In Wilson's view, the direct election of senators would ensure that the national government would take the proper lead in national affairs and that the states would need to support the national government. Contrary to the views of Dickinson, direct election would ensure that the best men of character would be elected to the Senate. He also pointed out that many of the concerns that created the need for the Constitutional Convention, including protecting the inalienable right of property against paper money, suspension of the payment of debts, and similar measures, were actually propagated by the state legislatures. It was folly to argue that we need to empower the state legislatures to protect the inalienable rights of the people by allowing them to appoint the senators when the state legislatures were the very source of the problem. Madison joined in, arguing that Dickinson's proposal would eliminate the principle of national representation, the whole point of the exercise. Delaware Delegate George Reed was less subtle. He struck at the character of those who wanted to protect state interest. He thought that they were simply being parochial, elevating state interest over the national welfare, and it was time to transcend the state's with a truly national government. Too much attachment is betrayed to the state governments. We must look beyond their continuance. A national government must soon of necessity swallow all of them up. I'm against patching up the old federal system. It would be like putting new cloth on an old garment. The Confederation of the Articles of Confederation was founded on temporary principles. It cannot last. It cannot be amended. If we do not establish a good government on new principles, we must either go to ruin or have the work to do again. 
the people at large are wrongly suspected of being averse to a general government. The aversion lies among interested men who possess their confidence. Making no real headway, the convention left the issue on the table for a couple of weeks and returned to debate it on June 25th. James Wilson took the floor again to thunder about the necessity of having the people directly elect the senators. The true source of all legislative power was the people, and therefore the people should elect the Senate. I am opposed to an election by the state legislatures. In explaining my reasons, it was necessary to observe the twofold relations in which the people would stand. First, as citizens of the general government, and secondly, as citizens of their particular state. The general government was meant for them in the first capacity, the state governments in the second. Both governments were derived from the people. Both meant for the people. Both, therefore, ought to be regulated on the same principles. The same train of ideas which belonged to the relation of the citizens to their state governments was applicable to their relation to the general government, and in forming the latter, we ought to proceed by abstracting as much as possible from the idea of the state governments. With respect to the province and object of the general government, they should be considered as having no existence. The election of the second branch by the legislatures will introduce and cherish local interests and local prejudices. The general government is not an assemblage of states, but of individuals, for certain political purposes. It is not meant for the states, but for the individuals composing them. The individuals, therefore, not the states, ought to be represented in it. Wilson commented that since the national government was for the people, it ought to be elected by them. When he concluded, he moved that the people of each state directly elect their senators, perhaps sensing he was losing the argument. He then revived the idea of electing electors, who then would select the Senate. The motion couldn't even gather a second. A few other delegates suggested postponing the vote on this issue, but the convention was ready to conclude the debate. A strong sentiment was forming to approve the election of the Senate by the state legislatures. Connecticut delegate Oliver Ellsworth was maneuvering a compromise to move the convention forward. He forcefully advocated that election by the state legislatures was absolutely essential to keep the peace, ensure domestic tranquility, and protect the nation from foreign invasion. Whoever chooses the senator, the senator will be a citizen of the state he is to represent, and will feel the same spirit and act the same part, whether he be appointed by the people or the legislature. Every state has its particular views and prejudices which will find their way into the general council, that is, the Senate, though whatever channel they may flow. Wisdom was one of the characteristics which it was in contemplation to give the second branch. Would not more of it issue from the legislature than from an immediate election by the people? I urge the necessity of maintaining the existence and agency of the states. Without their cooperation, it would be impossible to support a republican government over so great extent of country. An army could scarcely render it practicable. The largest states are the worst governed. Virginia is obliged to acknowledge her incapacity to extend her government to her territory of Kentucky. Massachusetts cannot keep the peace 100 miles from her capital and is now forming an army for its support. 
how long Pennsylvania may be free from a like situation cannot be foreseen. If the principles and materials of our government are not adequate to the extent of these single states, how can it be imagined that they can support a single government throughout the United States? The only chance of supporting a general government lies in grafting it on those of the individual states. Ellsworth believed that higher quality senators would be elected by the state legislatures, and having the state legislatures tied to the national government through the Senate was absolutely indispensable to operating a national government and governance covering all 13 states. Without this provision, the whole enterprise could be lost. Connecticut Delegate Dr. William Samuel Johnson added that under Wilson's plan, the states would be at the mercy of the general government. Virginia's George Mason piled on, noting that the states were essential to the success of the government and that they needed a faculty of self-defense, which could only be provided if the Senate was elected by the state legislatures. The vote was called. Election to the Senate by state legislatures was approved nine states to two. When the Constitution was challenged by the Anti-Federalists during the ratification debate in New York, John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, remarked at the New York Ratifying Convention that this method of selecting senators would ensure only the brightest lights would serve and that there would be close communication with the respective states to ensure that state interests would be protected. The Senate is to be composed of men appointed by the state legislatures. They will certainly choose those most distinguished for the general knowledge. I presume they will also instruct them that there will be a constant correspondence supported between the senators and the state executives who will be able, from time to time, to afford them all their particular information and which particular circumstances may require. Madison echoed this argument in the Federalist Papers. In addition, as part of the motion to have senators elected by the state legislatures, the convention struck out the phrase of a, quote, national government, unquote, and replaced it with the government of the, quote, United States, unquote. This seemingly technical matter was nothing but, and will be explored in depth in later episodes. Now that the convention had determined that there would be a Senate, and that it would be elected by the state legislatures, perhaps the hardest-fought issue of the entire convention loomed. How many senators would each state have? Would the senators be allocated in proportion with population, like the House of Representatives, or would each state have the same number of senators, that is, would equality prevail in the Senate? Bombastic Brent Bassett, please get us started on this vital debate. The convention tentatively addressed this issue even before the convention settled on the issue of how senators would be elected. On June 11th, Roger Sherman took the initiative and moved that each state have an equal vote in the Senate. Ellsworth seconded the motion. Sherman remarked presciently that everything depends on this. A vote was quickly taken, and the principle that everything depended upon was defeated six votes to five. Alexander Hamilton and James Wilson moved that the number of senators should, like the House of Representatives, be based on population. This counter motion passed six votes to five. However, this was hardly the end of the debate. Truly, it was just the beginning. The delegates rejoined the arguments on June 25th. Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gotham reflected on how Massachusetts 
had addressed this issue in connection with the representation of counties in the state. He was inclined to compromise on the issue, to, in effect, go with representation by population, but to also dilute the population of the larger states so as not to overwhelm the smaller states. He noted this method worked well in his home state, and this proposal ended where it started with no further discussion. After determining that the Senate would be chosen by state legislatures on June 25th, the convention returned in earnest to the issue of equality in the Senate. On June 28th, Madison aimed his considerable intellect at the problem. He asked a series of questions about why equality was necessary and cut them down. One of the key arguments for equality was that the Senate would be dominated by the larger states, oppressing the smaller ones. In part, he remarked that equality in the Senate is not necessary to secure small states against the large ones. Was a combination of the large ones dreaded? This must arise either from some interest common to Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, and distinguishing them from the other states, or from the mere circumstance of similarity of size. Did any such common interest exist? In point of situation, they could not have been more effectually separated from each other by the most jealous citizen of the most jealous state. In point of manners, religion, and the other circumstances, which sometimes beget affection between different communities, they were not more assimilated than the other states. In point of the staple productions, they were as dissimilar as any three other states in the Union. The staple of Massachusetts was fish, of Pennsylvania, flour, of Virginia, tobacco. Was a combination to be apprehended from the mere circumstance of equality of size? Experience suggested no such danger. The journals of Congress did not present any peculiar association of these states in the votes recorded. After explaining that there was no logical or historical reason for the small states to fear a combination of the larger states, Madison did what any good debater does. He turned the opponent's argument around back at its author. We debaters call that a turnaround. In this instance, Madison posited that the larger states actually would not combine together to oppress the smaller states but that the larger states would fight amongst themselves. Among individuals of superior eminence and weight in society, rivalships were much more frequent than coalitions. Among independent nations, preeminent over their neighbors, the same remark was verified. Carthage and Rome tore one another to pieces instead of uniting their forces to devour the weaker nations of the earth. The houses of Austria and France were hostile as long as they remained the greatest powers of Europe. 
England and France have succeeded to the preeminence and to the enmity. To this principle we owe perhaps our liberty. A coalition between those powers would have been fatal to us. Among the more principal members of ancient and modern confederacies, we find the same effect from the same cause. The contentions, not the coalitions of Sparta, Athens, and Thebes, proved fatal to the smaller members of the Amphiphtyonic Confederacy of ancient Greek city-states. The contentions, not the combinations of Prussia and Austria, have distracted and oppressed the Germanic Empire. Madison claimed, deeply rooted in ancient and then modern history, that it was much more likely that the larger states would squabble among each other than that they would gang up on the smaller states. In fact, as a quick aside, this would be proven again in the 20th century. World War I and World War II were brutal, genocidal campaigns between the largest and most powerful empires and free countries on the planet. Had the northern industrial powers joined forces, we would likely still be living in the age of imperialism in which Europe, America, and Japan directly governed the rest of the world. That's right. But, of course, the founders could not have known that. But they were genius enough to know that the rhythms of history would repeat. Madison continued his argument by noting that small, independent nations were often the victim of invasion and oppression, unless they were allied with others. Here, he said, was the more likely danger the small states would be facing. Unless they joined with the larger states in a strong nation, they would be at risk of invasion and defeat. The smaller states should be satisfied to be like counties in a strong state. That suggestion was not well received by the smaller and middle states. Connecticut delegate Dr. William Samuel Johnson pointed out that there was a deadlock based on principle and that the states needed to be protected in the new government as a matter of principle and practicality. The controversy must be endless, whilst gentlemen differ in the grounds of their arguments. Those on one side, considering the states as districts of people composing one political society, and those on the other, considering them as so many political societies. The fact is that the states do exist as political societies, and a government is to be formed for them in their political capacity, as well as for the individuals composing them. Does it not seem to follow that if the states as such are to exist, that they must be armed with some power of self-defense? This is the idea of Colonel Mason, who appears to have looked to the bottom of this matter— Besides the aristocratic and other interests, which ought to have the means of defending themselves, the states have their interests as such, and are equally entitled to like means. On the whole, I think, that 
In some respects, the states are to be considered in their political capacity, and in others as districts of individual citizens. The two ideas embraced on different sides, instead of being opposed to each other, ought to be combined. That in one branch, the people ought to be represented, and in the other, the states. Dr. Johnson pointed out that the convention was not starting from scratch or a blank slate, that the hard reality on the ground was that the states existed and they must be reckoned with to protect their interests if this seemingly endless squabble was to ever end. Madison did not take the hint. He again pleaded that for the new government to operate efficiently with its newly expanded powers, that the states would need to yield and be subordinate to the new government. In addition, he rejected the principle of the need to protect the states other than through a strong national government. I entreat the gentlemen representing the small states to renounce a principle which was confessedly unjust, which could never be admitted, and if admitted, must infuse mortality into a constitution which we wished to last forever. I pray them to ponder well the consequences of suffering the Confederacy to go to pieces. Let each state depend on itself its security, and let apprehensions arise of danger from distant powers or from neighboring states, and the languishing condition of all the states, large as well as small, would soon be transformed into vigorous and high-toned government. My great fear is that their governments would then have too much energy, that these might not only be formidable in the large to the small states, but fatal to the internal liberty of all. The same causes which have rendered the old world the theater of incessant wars and have banished liberty from the face of it would soon produce the same effects here. Madison was pulling out every stop if the states did not reject this unjust principle of equality in the Senate The Confederation, hanging by a thread under the Articles of Confederation, would collapse. Some states would become tyrannical to their own people. Others might begin to endanger their neighbors. Foreign nations would be tempted to invade. Chaos and internal and external strife, which had so plagued Europe for centuries, would spring anew here. He added that at the very least, Standing armies would spring up a grave threat to liberty everywhere. Talented New York delegate Alexander Hamilton rose and concurred in many of Madison's positions. He also elaborated on why they thought treating the states equally was unjust. But as states are a collection of individual men, which ought we to respect most, the rights of the people composing them or of the artificial beings resulting from the composition. Nothing could be more preposterous or absurd 
than to sacrifice the former for the latter. It has been said that if the smaller states renounce their equality, they renounce at the same time their liberty. The truth is it is a contest for power, not for liberty. Will the men composing the small states be less free than those composing the larger? The state of Delaware, having 40,000 souls, will lose power if she has one-tenth only of the votes allowed to Pennsylvania, having 400,000. But will the people of Delaware be less free if each citizen has an equal vote with each citizen of Pennsylvania? Ellsworth sprang back onto the stage. Madison, Hamilton, and the others were being unreasonable. Equality in the Senate was a reasonable compromise. To abandon it would result in the death of the convention. He again moved for the Senate to have voting equality of the states, just like the entire Congress did in the Articles of Confederation. I hope this motion would become a ground of compromise with regards to the second branch. We were partly national, partly federal. The proportional representation in the first branch was conformable to the national principle and would secure the large states against the small. An equality of voices was conformable to the federal principle and was necessary to secure the small states against the large. I trust that on this middle ground a compromise would take place. I do not see that it could on other. And if no compromise should take place, our meeting would not only be in vain, but worse than in vain. Ellsworth explained that despite the wonderful rhetoric of the proponents for election by population, that they were blind to the dangers faced by the small states. The power of self-defense was essential to the small states. Nature had given it to the smallest insects of creation. I could never admit that there was no danger of combinations amongst the large states. They will, like individuals, find out and avail themselves of the advantage to be gained by it. It was true the danger would be greater if they were contiguous and had a more immediate common interest. A defensive combination of the small states was rendered more difficult by their number. I will mention another consideration of great weight. The existing confederation was founded on the equality of the states in the article of suffrage. Was it meant to pay no regard to this antecedent-plighted faith? Let a strong executive, a judiciary, and legislative power be created, but let not too much be attempted, by which all may be lost. I am not in general a halfway man, yet I prefer doing half the good we could rather than do nothing at all. The other half may be added when the necessity shall be more fully experienced. Wilson was not about to let this go. The principle of equality was wrong. It would disenfranchise the great bulk of the population and let the minority dictate the affairs of the government. This undermined everything a republic should stand for. If this was a decision rule for the small states, in other words, if the convention was going to fail over this issue, Wilson would live with the consequences. The principle and stakes were worth breaking the country over. I hope the alarms of the convention ending in failure and of not confederacy breaking exceeded their cause and that they would not abandon a country to which they were bound by so strong and endearing ties. 
But should the deplored event happen, it would neither stagger my sentiments nor my duty. If the minority of the people of America refuse to coalesce with the majority on just the proper principles, if a separation must take place, it could never happen on better grounds. The gentleman from Connecticut, Mr. Ellsworth, in supposing the preponderancy secured to the majority in the first branch had removed the objections to an equality of votes in the second branch for the security of the minority, narrowed the case extremely. Such an equality will enable the minority to control in all cases whatsoever the sentiments and interests of the majority. Seven states will control six Seven states, according to the estimates that had been used, composed twenty-four ninetieths of the whole people. It would be in the power, then, of less than one-third to overrule two-thirds whenever a question should happen to divide the states in that manner. Can we forget for whom we are forming a government? It is for men, or for the imaginary beings called states." Will our honest constituents be satisfied with metaphysical distinctions? Will they, ought they, to be satisfied with being told that the one-third compose the greater number of states? The rule of suffrage ought on every principle to be the same in the second as in the first branch. If the government be not laid on this foundation, it can be neither solid nor lasting." Any other principle will be local, confined, and temporary. Now it was Ellsworth's turn to answer Wilson. The idea that the minority would rule was a farce. Despite what Wilson said, the House of Representatives would check the minority too. Both the majority and the minority would need to agree to enact legislation. Plus, not only were the Articles of Confederation set up with equality of the states, but that was the governing principle in the House of Lords in the English Empire and any confederation in history. This was a reasonable measure to protect all. The whole edifice of the Articles of Confederation need not be abandoned, only improved. The capital objection of Mr. Wilson that the minority will rule the majority is not true. The power is given to the few to save them from being destroyed by the many. If an equality of votes had been given to them in both branches, the objection might have had weight. Is it a novel thing that the few should have a check on the many? Is it not the case in the British Constitution, the wisdom of which so many gentlemen united in applauding? Have not the House of Lords, who form so small a proportion of the nation, a negative on the laws, as a necessary defence of their peculiar rights against the encroachment of the commons? No instance of a confederacy has existed in which an equality of voices has not been exercised by the members of it. We are running from one extreme to another. We are raising the foundations of the building when we only need repair the roof. No salutary measure has been lost for want of a majority of the states to favor it. If security be all the great states wish for, the first branch secures them." The danger of combinations among them is not imaginary. After some more adroit but repetitive debate by Madison and others, 
Delaware delegate Gunning Bedford Jr. rose to give perhaps the most dramatic exposition about why Senate equality was so important. First, he observed that the convention debate actually laid bare for all to see the fallacy of the opponents of equality in the Senate. The large state delegates were teaming up and opposing the smaller states right there on the floor of the Constitutional Convention. States with small populations like Georgia, but who fancy themselves as becoming among the more populated states, were joining the larger states. Second, even looking past that, he went for the jugular. Pretenses to support ambition are never wanting. There is where there are people. Their cry is, where is the danger? And they insist that although the powers of the general government will be increased, yet it will be for the good of the whole. And although the three great states form nearly a majority of the people of America, they never will hurt or injure the lesser states. I do not, gentlemen, trust you. If you possess the power, the abuse of it could not be checked. And what then would prevent you from exercising it to our destruction? Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry to jump in, Bombastic Mark Bassett, but I just love this guy. Bedford could not have been more candid or confrontational. He was really just totally in the face of the delegates of the larger states. I mean, he did agree with Hamilton's analysis. This was all about power. And he simply did not trust the large states, including the very people in the convention with him, with unlimited power. And he was hardly done. He challenged the convention's moving forward with the Randolph Resolution's wholesale scrapping of the Articles of Confederation. After all, the people of the states and the Congress had called for a constitutional convention, not to draw up a whole new plan, but to amend and improve the Articles of Confederation. If the large states refused to allow equality in the Senate, it would lead to the failure of the Constitutional Convention and the parade of horribles that Madison and Wilson feared would indeed happen. But the blame would lie at the feet of the large states. The time was now for calmer heads to prevail and to prevent the disaster of foreign interference. But what have the people already said? We find the Confederation defective. Go and give additional powers to the Confederation. The impost, regulation of trade, power to collect the taxes, and the means to discharge our foreign and domestic debts. Can we not then, as their delegates, agree upon these points? Why then, when we are met, must entire, distinct, and new grounds be taken, and a government of which the people had no idea be instituted? And are we to be told, if we don't agree to it, it is the last moment of our deliberations? I say, it is indeed the last moment if we do agree to this assumption of power. The states will never be entrapped into a measure like this. The people will say the small states would confederate and grant further powers to Congress, but you, the large states, would not. Then the fault will be yours, and all the nations of the earth will justify us. But what is to become of our public debts if we dissolve the Union? Where is your plighted faith? Will you crush the smaller states, or must they be left unmolested? Sooner than be ruined, there are foreign powers who will take us by the hand. I say this not to threaten or intimidate, but that we should reflect seriously before we act. If we once leave this floor and solemnly renounce your new project, what will be the consequence? You will annihilate your federal government, and ruin must stare you in the face. 
Let us then do what is in our power, amend and enlarge the Confederation, but not alter the federal system. The people expect this, and no more. We all agree in the necessity of a more efficient government, and cannot this be done? Although my state is small, I know and respect its rights as much, at least, as those who have the honor to represent any of the larger states. Wow. To say that passions ran high was an understatement. This vexatious issue is tying the delegates into knots. There seemed little hope of reconciling the very pointed views of both sides. Governor Morris would later note that the fate of America hung by a hair. And then Benjamin Franklin, the elder statesman, made a graceful proposal he hoped would pave the way to a reasonable resolution. No, he didn't propose yet another political solution. Instead, on June 28th, he suggested that the convention call upon a higher power, or rather, the higher power. Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continuing reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as eyes, is methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. In the situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice... Is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall come to a reproach and a byword to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings and our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in the service.
Oh my, that was a very long passage, but very compelling. One might think that considering Franklin's stature as a scientist, inventor, founder of various charitable organizations, printer, cultural icon, diplomat, political leader, and international celebrity, that the convention would have easily acceded to his request. After all, nearly everyone believed in the Almighty, or at the very least, divine providence. Why not call upon the supreme being in this hour of need? Mr. Sherman seconded the motion. But the convention did not quickly adopt the measure. In fact, Alexander Hamilton and others suggested that approving the measure then might cast a pall on the convention if word was spread among the public that the convention had desperately resorted to calling in a minister to pray. Franklin responded that the failure to call for such assistance in the past did not justify ignoring it now. He even thought a bit of panic might be a very good thing under the circumstances. North Carolina Delegate Hugh Williamson tried to pull down the veil by arguing that the real reason to oppose the motion was that the convention had no funds to pay for a minister. Governor Randolph suggested that the convention could avoid any embarrassment by having a minister pray on the anniversary of Independence Day, and then they could just, you know, kind of keep him around. Franklin was very encouraged by this idea, and he seconded Randolph's motion. Nevertheless, in the end, the idea was abandoned without even a vote. Bombastic Brent Bassett, I'm not sure why you let me interrupt your segment, but go ahead and take the microphone back. Finally, thanks, Judge Warren. The debate on equality in the Senate continued for two more days. Many, many of the arguments were repeated and elaborated by the original debaters and their allies, but nothing was changing the minds of the delegates. One relatively humorous remark was brought by New Jersey delegate Jonathan Dayton, who thought that a House of Representatives with vote by population and a Senate with equality of the states was, Oh, it is but a novelty, an amphibious monster, and I am persuaded that it never will be received by the people. The same day, Bedford was added again, calling out the large states for their obvious collusion in the convention and the need to protect the smaller states. There could be no compromise other than ensuring equality in the Senate. He thought the amphibious monster the only way of salvation. With these and many other words ringing in their ears, the delegates finally voted again on June 30th, resulting in a deadlock of five states to five states with one state evenly divided. On July 2nd, a committee of 11 was appointed to consider this and other issues with one person from each delegation in attendance. On July 5th, the committee returned with a report that included equality of votes in the Senate. In particular, the report recommended two proposals that should be jointly approved. First, the House of Representatives should be based on population, including the infamous three-fifths clause, and that only the House of Representatives could originate spending bills. And second, that in the Senate, each state had an equal number of votes. Wilson, Madison, and other supporters of votes based on population were unconvinced and launched into more salvos of illuminating arguments, some might call them harangues, about the unjust nature of a Senate in which each state had an equal vote. On July 9th, Another committee report basically made the same recommendations of the committee report on July 5th. This debate dragged on until July 16th, when the principle of equality in the Senate 
was approved by a single vote. North Carolina, which had been voting with the large states, flipped sides. Massachusetts was deadlocked, meaning that the proposal passed five states to four. This was solidified with a second victory on July 23rd, along with a resolution about how the senators voted. Ironically, after the proposed constitution was sent to the states for ratification, Madison and Hamilton vigorously and ably defended equality in the Senate. In fact, in the Federalist Papers, Madison downplayed what had been the most virulent debate and important decision of the convention and suggested that it would benefit both the large and small states. The equality of representation in the Senate is another point, which, being evidently the result of compromise between the opposite pretensions of the large and the small states, does not call for much discussion. It does not appear to be without some reason that in a compound republic, partaking both of the national and federal character, the government ought to be founded on a mixture of the principles of proportional and equal representation. The equal vote allowed to each state is at once a constitutional recognition of the portion of sovereignty remaining in the individual states and an instrument for preserving that residuary sovereignty. So far, the equality ought to be no less acceptable to the large than to the small states, since they are not less solicitous to guard by every possible expedience against an improper consolidation of the states into one simple republic. The issue of equality of the Senate would still raise its head in various delegates' comments, but for all practical purposes, the convention had conclusively determined that the states would be equally represented in the Senate. (laughs) Easy peasy! Except that there were still a couple of other very sticky wickets. How many senators would each state have, and how would they vote? Mike Girard, how did they solve these issues? Well, under the Articles of Confederation, there was only one chamber, and each state collectively had a single vote. Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation provided that each state was represented by at least two and no more than seven members. But the delegations of each state voted amongst themselves to determine how their state would vote. That system could easily have carried over to the Senate under the Constitution. During the debate on equality, it appears that the delegates assumed that a similar system of voting would carry on. However, on July 23rd, Virginia Delegate Governor Morris moved and Massachusetts Delegate Rufus King seconded that the senators vote per capita. That is each senator would individually have one vote. And in today's parlance, since there are 50 states, there are 100 senators and 100 voters. If they had stuck with the method in the Articles of Confederation, no matter how many senators there would be, at least 200 and up to 700 under the Articles of Confederation, there would be only 50 votes, one per state. 
Considering how dramatic and comprehensive the debate on equality was, the debate on per capita voting and the number of senators was relatively quick and cursory. Governor Morris also moved that each state have three senators. However, several delegates expressed that they wanted the Senate to be a smaller, more exclusive chamber, and the motion for three senators failed eight states to one. The sense of the convention was that two senators was the ideal number. On the issue of per capita voting, Maryland delegate Luther Martin argued that per capita voting went against the principal idea of states being represented in the Senate. After all, there would be no state votes, like under the Articles of Confederation, but individual senator votes. But with the large issue of equality having been settled, per capita voting, with each state represented by two senators, was approved nine states to one with only Maryland's Martin voting against it. United States Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story ably summarized why two senators was the magic number. To ensure competent knowledge and ability to discharge all the functions entrusted to the Senate and, at the same time, to give promptitude and efficiency to their acts, the number should not be unreasonably large or small. The number should be sufficiently large to ensure a sufficient variety of talents and experience and practical skills for the just discharge of all the duties of that important branch of the legislature. A very small body is also more easily overawed and intimidated by external influences than one of a reasonable size, embracing weight of character and dignity of talents. Numbers alone in many cases confer power and encourage firmness. If the number of the Senate were confined to one for each state, there would be danger that it might be too small for a comprehensive knowledge and diligence in all the business devolved upon the body. And besides, in such a case, the illness or accidental absence of a senator might deprive a state of its vote on an important question, or of its influence at an interesting debate. If, on the other hand, the number were very large, the Senate might become unwieldy and want dispatch and due responsibility. It could hardly exercise due deliberation in functions connected with executive duties which might at the same time require prompt action. If any number beyond one be proper, two seems as convenient a number as any which can be devised. The Senate, upon its present organization, cannot probably ever become too large or too small for the fit discharge of all its functions. The benefit is retained of consultation and mutual interchange of opinion between the members from the same state, and the number is sufficient to guard against any undue influence over it by the more popular branch of the legislature. So two really was the magic number. Another key issue was to determine the length of the term of office for senators. Under Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation, members of the Congress served one-year terms. Governor Morris went for the exact opposite approach in the Senate. He argued that senators needed life terms to be independent and to counter the democratic failings and passions of the House of Representatives. To make the Senate independent, it should be for life. An independence for life involves the necessary permanence. If we change our measures, no foreign state or government body will trust us. How to avoid a change of measures but by avoiding a change of men? 
Among many other comments, Morris argued that the lifetime appointment would help draw in the most talented, wealthy, and educated persons to serve, and that was vitally important to make a bicameral Congress fulfill its function. You can almost see Roger Sherman choking on his drink when Morris was arguing for a lifetime appointment. You know, one of those terrible scenes where you can't breathe and you're about to spit your drink everywhere and you nearly are choking to death? Well, Sherman countered by arguing that permanency in government was in fact very dangerous to the liberties of the people, just the opposite of what Morris argued. Sherman contended that his home state of Connecticut was very well served by frequent elections, and that a four- or six-year term was more sufficient to provide the stability that Morris sought. Well, government is instituted for those who live under it. It ought, therefore, to be so constituted as not to be dangerous to their liberties. The more permanency it has, the worse if it be a bad government. Frequent elections are necessary to preserve the good behavior of rulers. They also tend to give permanency to the government by preserving that good behavior because it ensures their re-election. In Connecticut, elections have been very frequent, yet great stability and uniformity both as to persons and measures have been experienced a period of more than a 130 years. I wish to have provision made to steadiness and wisdom in the system to be adopted, but I think six or four years would be sufficient, and I shall be content with either one. In the course of the discussions on June 12th, various delegates suggested a term of three years, five years, and seven years. Georgia delegate William Pierce argued that experience in England showed that three years was necessary to protect liberty. Closely tracking Morris's arguments, Virginia delegate Edmund Randolph pushed for seven years. The democratic licentiousness of the state legislatures proved the necessity of a firm Senate. The object of this second branch is to control the democratic branch of the national legislature, if it be not a firm body, the other branch being more numerous and coming immediately from the people will overwhelm it. The Senate of Maryland, constituted on like principles, had been scarcely able to stem the popular torrent. No mischief can be apprehended as the concurrence of the other branch and, in some measure, of the executive, will in all cases be necessary. A firmness and independence may be the more necessary, also in this branch, as it ought to guard the Constitution against encroachments of the executive, who will be apt to form combinations with the demagogues of the popular branch. Madison concurred and on June 12th, seven years was agreed to, eight to one. The argument, however, shifted a bit on June 26th. Then Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorham moved that the term be six years and that one-third be elected every second year. Wilson seconded the motion. Another debate about the length of the term of office erupted. 
South Carolina Delegate General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was very concerned that a long term of office would result in senators becoming beholden to the interests of the state in which the capital would be settled. Now, at this time, the convention had not settled on a capital city, and Pinckney was concerned that wherever it was located, be it Philadelphia, New York, or Virginia, that the home state would dominate the federal Congress. States have different interests. Those of the Southern and of South Carolina in particular were different from the Northern. If the senators should be appointed for a long term, they would settle in the state where they exercised their functions. And when in a little time, be rather the representatives of that than of the state appointing them. Wow, that is amazing. He actually predicted what we call the Beltway Mentality, in which some critics argue that members of Congress lose touch with their constituents and instead are captured by the Washington, D.C. agencies, lobbyists, and others. They forget about their home state and are beguiled by the charms of Washington, D.C., And there wasn't even a Washington, D.C. yet when he made that observation. The general wanted four-year terms. The diametrically opposite approach was advocated by George Reed, who moved that the term should be nine years. This had the added advantage of allowing one-third of the Senate to be replaced every three years. The motion was seconded by Delaware delegate Jacob Broom. Madison took the floor again. He observed that the purpose of the Senate was to check the passions and errors that might arise in the House of Representatives, and that firmness, knowledge, and enlightenment in the Senate was necessary for it to fulfill its function. The Senate was also to be the hedge to protect the unalienable rights of property against the masses attempting to redistribute wealth in a leveling spirit. As such, a nine-year term would not be too long. Massachusetts Delegate Nathaniel Gorham moved for a six-year term, with one-third of the Senate up for election every two years. Wilson seconded the motion. General Pinckney opposed the six-year term, finding that four was the better term. In the crest of the debate, Hamilton remarked that he agreed with Madison's observation that this decision about the stability of the Senate would have ramifications that would echo down the ages. I concur with Mr. Madison in thinking we were to decide forever the fate of Republican government, that if we did not give to that form due stability and wisdom, it would be disgraced and lost among ourselves, disgraced and lost to mankind forever. As such, Hamilton argued, as long a term as possible should be provided to the senators. The motion for a nine-year term was defeated on June 26th, eight states to three. Instead, the convention approved a six-year term, one-third of the seats to be elected every other year, by a margin of seven to four. When the Anti-Federalists attacked the term as being too long, Hamilton would defend it in the Federalist Papers, pointing out that it was necessary to provide the knowledge, wisdom, expertise, fortitude, diligence, and independence necessary for the Senate to fulfill its functions in connection with foreign relations and treaty-making powers. If you consider but a moment the purposes for which the Senate was instituted and the nature of the business which they are to transact, you will see the necessity of giving them duration. They, together with the President, are to manage all our concerns with foreign nations. They must understand all their interests and their political systems. 
This knowledge is not soon acquired, but a very small part is gained in the closet. Is it desirable then that new and unqualified be continually thrown into that body? You cannot judge of the propriety of their conduct, but from the result of their systems, they may be forming plans which require time and diligence to bring to maturity. It is necessary, therefore, that they should have a considerable and fixed duration, that they may make their calculations accordingly. If they are to be perpetually fluctuating, they can never have that responsibility which is so important in republican governments. Considering the Senate, therefore, with a view to responsibility, duration is a very interesting and essential quality. There is another view in which duration in the Senate appears necessary. A government, changeable in its policy, must soon lose its sense of national character and forfeit the respect of foreigners. Our political rivals will ever consider our mutual counsels as evidence of deficient wisdom and will be little apprehensive of our arriving at any exalted station in the scale of power. Such are the internal and external disadvantages which would result from the principle contended for. Were it admitted, I am firmly persuaded, sir, that prejudices would govern the public deliberations and passions rage in the councils of the Union. Likewise, Madison added in the Federalist Papers that the six-year term was necessary to counter the passions of the people that would be reflected in the House of Representatives. The Senate would temper the desire for quick action with due deliberation and consideration. The proper remedy for this defect must be an additional body in the legislative department, which having sufficient permanency to provide for such objects as require a continued attention, and a train of measures may be justly and effectually answerable for the attainment of those objects. Judge Warren, you want to bring us home? Absolutely, bombastic Brent Bassett. On July 26th, the convention had made a great deal of progress, but there were many outstanding issues related to the judiciary and executive, as well as the authority of Congress. The convention appointed a committee to try to address these issues and took a 10-day recess while the committee worked. On August 6, the committee presented what in essence was the first draft of the Constitution. Article 3 of the draft provided, The legislative power shall be vested in a Congress to consist of two separate and distinct bodies of men, a House of Representatives and a Senate each of which shall in all cases have a negative on the other. The legislature shall meet on the first Monday in December every year. Article 5 defined the Senate more thoroughly, and Sections 1 and 2 provided, Section 1. The Senate of the United States shall be chosen by the legislatures of the several states. Each legislature shall choose two members. Vacancies may be supplied by the executive until the next meeting of the legislature. Each member shall have one vote. Section 2. The senators shall be chosen for six years. But immediately after the first election, they shall be divided by lot, into three classes, as nearly as may be, numbered 1, 2, and 3. The seats of the members of the first class shall be vacated after the expiration of the second year, the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, 
so that a third part of the members may be chosen every second year. Although these provisions were reworded in the final draft, the key components of a bicameral Congress, with a Senate that represented states equally, each state having two members serving six-year terms, was firmly in place at the convention. The heated debate in the convention had ended, but when the draft was presented for ratification, an entirely new debate broke out across the continent. Many attacked the Senate as aristocratic in nature, almost perpetuating a monarchy. Patrick Henry, likely the most eloquent, persuasive, and forceful speaker of the age, railed in the Virginia ratifying convention. The Constitution is said to have beautiful features. But when I come to examine those features, sir, they appear to me to be horribly frightful. Your Senate is so imperfectly constructed that your dearest rights may be sacrificed by what may be a small minority. And a very small minority may continue forever unchangeably this government, although horridly defective. Where are your checks in this government? Your strongholds will be in the hands of your enemies." It is on supposition that our American governors shall be honest, that all the good qualities of this government are founded, but its defective and imperfect construction puts in their power to perpetrate the worst of mischiefs, should they be bad men. And, sir, would not all the world, from the eastern to the western hemisphere, blame our distracted folly in resting our rights on the contingency of our rulers being good or bad? Show me the age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of the rulers being good men, without a consequence loss of liberty. I say that the loss of that dearest privilege has ever followed with absolute certainty every such made attempt. I told you Patrick Henry was eloquent. Is it any wonder how he ever lost an argument? Oh yeah, Madison was on the other side of this one in Virginia. But Henry was not alone. Many of the Anti-Federalists, those who opposed the ratification of the Constitution, savaged the Senate as being an institution of aristocracy that should be rejected. Complementing this critique was the robust argument that the Senate was simply too small and unrepresentative of the people. The dissenters in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention released an address that showed just how small the Senate could be. The House of Representatives is to consist of 65 members. That is one for about every 50,000 inhabitants, to be chosen every two years. 33 members will form a quorum for doing business, and 17 of these, being the majority, determine the sense of the House. The Senate, the other constituent branch of the legislatures, consisting of 26 members being two from each state, appointed by the legislatures every six years, 14 senators make a quorum, the majority of whom eight determines the sense of that body. Except in judging on impeachments or making treaties or in expelling a member, when two-thirds of the senators present must concur. Thus, it appears that the liberties, happiness, interest, and great concerns of the whole United States may be dependent upon the integrity, virtue, wisdom, and knowledge of 25 or 26 men. How inadequate and an unsafe a representation. Inadequate because the sense and views of three or four millions of people diffused over so extensive a territory comprising such various climates, products, habits, interests, and opinions cannot be collected in so small a body. And besides, 
It is not a fair and equal representation of the people in proportion to its number, for the smallest state has as much weight in the Senate as the largest, and from the smallness of the number to be chosen for both branches on the legislature, and from the mode of election and appointment, which is under the control of Congress. And from the nature of the thing, men of the most elevated rank in life will alone be chosen. The other orders in society, such as farmers, traders, and mechanics, who ought to have a competent number of their best-informed men in the legislature, will be totally unrepresented. How could this paltry number of people truly represent the people? The critique stung strongly, but another critique based on the size was even more biting. Anti-Federalist Brutus, likely New York delegate Robert Yates, who wrote that the Senate would be nothing more than a cesspool of corruption. The small number which is to compose this legislature will not only expose it to the danger, the corruption, and undue influence which will arise from the gift of places of honor and emolument, or the more direct one of bribery, but it will also subject it to another kind of influence, no less fatal to the liberties of the people, though it be not so flagrantly repugnant to the principles of rectitude. It is not to be expected that a legislature will be found in any country that will not have some of its members who will pursue their private ends, and for which they will sacrifice the public good. Men of this character are generally artful and designing, and frequently possess brilliant talents and abilities. They commonly act in concert, and agree to share the spoils of their country among them. They will keep their object ever in view, and follow it with constancy. To their purpose, they will assume any shape, and Proteus-like mold themselves into any form. Where they find members proof against direct bribery or gifts of offices, they will endeavor to mislead their minds by specious and false reasoning to impose upon their unsuspecting honesty by an affection of zeal for the public good. They will form juntas and hold outdoor meetings. They will operate upon the good nature of their opponents by the earnestness of solicitation. Those who are acquainted with the manner of conducting business in public assemblies know how prevalent art and address are in carrying a measure, even over men of their best intentions and of good understanding. The firmest security against this kind of improper and dangerous influence, as well as all other, is a strong and numerous representation in such a house of assembly. So a great number must be gained over before the private views of individuals could be gratified and that there could be scarce a hope of success. But in the Federal Assembly, 17 men are all that is necessary to pass a law. It is probable, it will seldom happen, that more than considered what a number of places of honor and emolument would be in the gift of the executive, the power of influence that great and designing men have over the honest and unsuspecting by their art and address, their soothing manners and civilities, and their cringing flattery, joined with their affected patriotism. When these different species of influence are combined, it is scarcely to be hoped that a legislature composed of so small a number as their force will not be corrupted. Seriously, do we have anyone on the public stage that makes that kind of an eloquent argument? In any event, Brutus and many others thought that the small number of senators and human character would combine to corrupt them into betraying the interest of the common good for their own advantage. This theme of corruption and too much power being concentrated in the Senate controlled by a small cabal ran through many anti-federalist writings and speeches. In addition, the term of office was too long, there is no ability to recall senators, and there are no term limits. The Senate appeared to be an imperial institution more appropriate for the Roman Empire or the corrupt systems of Europe than for a freedom-loving people who had just recently overthrown the shackles of British oppression. 
Indeed, one of the key founding fathers at the Constitutional Convention, Albert Sherry, refused to sign the Constitution because of his deep-seated fear of the Senate becoming a self-perpetuating institution that would ignore the rights of the people and the interest of the states. The Federalists responded that the Senate had no independent power. After all, it could accomplish nothing alone. The Senate could pass no law unless the House of Representatives also approved it and the President signed it. Or the House of Representatives joined the Senate to override a presidential veto. The Senate could appoint no government officials unless the officers were first nominated by the President. The defenders of the Senate again argued that the six-year term was the perfect amount of time to allow wisdom and institutional knowledge to build without any risk of an aristocracy arising. Moreover, the entire Senate needed to be elected by their local state legislatures, ensuring that state interests would be protected. Dr. David Ramsey was a leading political figure in South Carolina and a future historian, including the groundbreaking history of the American Revolution. He gave a speech advocating for the ratification of the Constitution in South Carolina, in which he succinctly elucidated why the Senate, combined with the other elements of the Constitution, was the best America could hope for, a true masterstroke of genius. We have now in our view the fairest prospects of political happiness. The wisdom, energy, and well-poised balances the happiness of our new system promise to confute the assertions of those who maintain that there are incurable evils inherent in every form of Republican government. From the Federal House of Representatives, we may expect a sympathy from the wants and wishes of the people. From the Senate, wisdom, unity of design, and a permanent system of national happiness. From the executive, secrecy, vigor, and dispatch. In short, our new constitution is a happy combination of the simple form of government and as free from the inconveniences of each as could be expected from the inseparable imperfection of all human institutions. It unites liberty with safety and promises the enjoyment of all the rights of civil society while it leads us up the steep ascent to national greatness. And so the convention and the ratifiers settled on a Senate that would ensure an ingenious protection of liberty in the structure of the federal government. Some key takeaways from this episode. Senators were originally elected by the state legislatures of each state. This method of selection was chosen to best ensure that the interest of each state was properly represented in the federal government. Two senators represent each state, with each senator having a single vote. Equality of representation on a state basis was a key compromise in drafting the Constitution. This was essential to ensure that the interest of each state would be properly represented and that the large states would not dominate the rest of the nation. Senators served for six-year terms. This was understood to provide the necessary stability and institutional knowledge for a steady hand of government and to provide the firmness necessary to check the excessive passions of the House of Representatives while also ensuring that the senators would be accountable to each of their states. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinuchny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's founding first principles, key documents, and speeches, Founding Fathers and Other Great Patriots, and Flags from Our History, along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. 
Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, when we continue our exploration of the United States Senate, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.